Today's first scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 33 and 40 to 47. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Verse 40. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Second scripture reading uh, from both, well, from Acts 3 and 4 and 5, a little bit from each. Let's hear God's word once again. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Everyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Verse 24, indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Then beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. 
The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, Peter had healed a lame man earlier, uh, who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them not uh, to speak no longer anymore to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Chapter 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, those of you who are regular churchgoers, I've got a question for you. Do you ever feel like you're just not feeling it? Like you're just not, I mean, you're showing up. You're being faithful to come. But you go away and you're just thinking, eh, I'm just not feeling it. It's the reality of the things about which we're speaking and singing. I'm just not feeling it. Or maybe there are times where you really do feel it, and you walk out of here with a skip in your step, and you think, I don't know what happened there, but that was really special. And then you start to think, well, maybe it was just 
the postlude was just amazing, right? Or you think, uh, well, I did have a cup of coffee right before I went in. It was just the caffeine. Or they sang my favorite hymns. Perhaps that's all it was in the end. Do you ever feel that way? Ask those questions. Um, I hope it's not just me. I sometimes do myself. So how do we make our faith feel more real? I don't know the answer, but I can propose this. If what we desire is not merely to feel more of the feels, but if what we desire is to actually experience together the nearness of God and the grace of Jesus, then perhaps it's time to respond to the pouring out of the Spirit's Pentecostal power. Perhaps it's time to respond as a church and see if that changes our experience. We're in the seven missional acts of the book of Acts. This is act two now. And this act is an act of Pentecostal power. Pentecost was the feast day when they were together, and that is when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. So let's see what it might involve to have Pentecostal power as the church of Jesus Christ. And then once we do that, we'll finish by returning to this question and ask, how could the exercise of the participation in Pentecostal power change our experience so that it feels, in fact, and it is more real to us? So what is Act 2? What is Pentecostal power? I think it means at least these four things. Ready? Pentecostal power is the power to go public, the power to proclaim, the power to persevere, and the power to procreate. To go public, to proclaim, to persevere, and to procreate. So let's just walk through each of these, shall we? First, the power to go public. So last week, if you were here, or if you caught up Uh, from home or on the podcast or something, you saw that after the death of Jesus and before the sending of the Holy Spirit, the disciples were together in a period of uncertain waiting. First, the disciples were utterly terrified, right? Because Jesus had been arrested and tried and convicted and executed. And then they were confused but hopeful because they started hearing reports of his resurrection. And then they were overjoyed because they encountered the living Jesus and they learned from him. But still, right up until this moment, which we've just read about in Acts 2, they were underground. And in fact, Jesus had told them to wait, even as he was ascending to heaven. And so they waited. They waited. What's the matter with these disciples? Were they not ready for their mission? Well, they had been prepared in many ways before this, hadn't they? They had been emotionally prepared for their mission. They had become joyful in hope at the resurrection of Jesus. They had become intellectually prepared, right? Jesus showed them throughout all the scriptures how he was at their center. What did they lack? Well, they weren't yet spiritually prepared, were they? They lacked the spiritual propulsion necessary to go public, 
Pentecostal power, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on this people of the promise of God, this Pentecostal power pushed this small band of disciples out from their upper rooms and out from their secret cellars. And this Pentecostal power catapulted these Jesus people out towards the hopes and the brokenness and the desires and the longings and the fears of their surrounding community, that first Pentecost. Many of us who are following Jesus today, we are rather private about our faith, aren't we? We don't want to seem obnoxious or intolerant or pushy or fanatical. And we want to respect everyone's right to believe what they believe, right? And you know what? That's okay. I also don't want to be obnoxious or pushy or irritating. The same Peter who preaches and publishes the good news so boldly on Pentecost and beyond, don't forget, is the same Peter who publishes his letter. And his letter says, we have to treat our neighbors who believe differently than us with great gentleness and respect, even as we share the reason for the hope that we have within us. But nevertheless, he still tells us to be ready, as he was that day, to give the reason for the hope that we have. Friends, our faith, I don't know if this is new to you, but our faith is not a private matter. We are not a Luke chapter 24 or an Acts chapter 1 people. We are a Pentecost people, an Acts chapter 2 people. We cannot try to gather up the Holy Spirit and sort of put the Spirit back in a bottle. The Spirit was never in a bottle to begin with, and now the Spirit is poured out upon the church. And so going public is our thing. And going public doesn't simply mean that we rent a church building and we put up a sign and we you know, pay for a website. It means that, sure, but going public means that we take our intimate fellowship, our in that we talked about last year, and now we make it available to everyone who is on the outside from us. Look at chapter 2, verses 42 and following. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the scriptures and to fellowship and to meals together and to the prayers And they did that together, but they did it in such a way that it was available to the wider community. It was not hidden from public view. And we know that because at the end of that section, Luke tells us that the Lord added to their number. Our willingness to look out for one another's material needs needs to be done with discretion. But it doesn't need to be a secret that we are generous to help and support one another. The Jesus movement of the first century is considered a weird Jewish fringe sect kind of thing, right? But that doesn't stop them from meeting where? In the temple courts every day and praising God there in front of you know God and everybody. Instead of being in spiritual quarantine, they're moving from house to house and they're filling their bellies with good food And they're filling one another's hearts with gladness. To be a Pentecostal people means that we are done hiding. 
We're done policing our boundaries. We're no longer afraid of what might happen if someone thinks that our shared life together in the spirit is strange. We are under the influence of Pentecostal power. But the Pentecostal community is not just doing their religious thing in the public square where people can sort of overhear what they're doing and saying. They have also become, second, a community of proclamation. They are under the power to proclaim. You know, I've been here two and a half years now in Switzerland, and from a secular perspective, Switzerland is pretty much perfect, right? Every Gemeinde has its beautiful old church and its beautiful steeple, and you can go and you can think, oh, how cute, a, a relic from the past, and you can take your selfie in front of the beautiful church tower. You can hear its bells ring from time to time and get a smile and a warm feeling. But no one has to hear a word about Jesus anywhere else, right? The museumification, if you like, of Christianity is almost perfectly complete around here. But if I could start a campaign, I think its slogan would be this. Let's normalize, let's normalize talking about the things that matter most to us among the people that matter most to us. Is that obnoxious? It seems pretty normal to me. Yes, public worship counts as public proclamation. But look, do you think it was any less taboo to talk about Jesus in Jerusalem's marketplaces in Peter's day than it is to talk about Jesus with your friends in Zurich's cafes today? No. Proclamation takes the form of public speeches, sure, by Peter in these chapters, but that's not all that there is to it. The Jerusalem community could not stop together telling the good news, the good news that had first given them birth and was now growing among them. Look, I'm a preacher, and you all have, in part, paid me to publicly proclaim Jesus. That's fine. We also pay missionaries to go around the world and to publicly proclaim Jesus. Also an awesome thing. But all of us together are a proclamation people. All of us together in our networks of friends and colleagues and neighbors, the people that know us best and love us most, are a proclamation people. So open your home and open your heart and open your life and open your love to the people who already know you and like you and trust you. And my guess is that you will never have to obnoxiously bring it up with them because it will surface out of the overflow of your heart and people will ask, what is the reason for the hope you have so obviously? And then you get a chance with gentleness and respect, as Peter says, to be proclamation people. Just say something about what Jesus has done for you and say something about what Jesus has done for the world. It's not a sermon. It's not a big production. It's just your privilege as part of the proclamation people that is empowered 
by Pentecost. If we're going to be a Pentecostal people, we have to be also a proclamation people. So Pentecostal power is the power to go public. It's the power to proclaim. Third thing, it's the power to persevere, to persevere. We have to ask ourselves if we are reading the two-volume Luke text, Luke and Acts, which are just two parts together, we have to ask ourselves, what in the world has gotten into Peter? He has changed so much. Remember Peter's macho talk, right? I will never deny you, Jesus. Even if everybody else does, I will die for you. Like he was ready to go, wasn't he? Remember Peter's Peter's macho tough guy tactics too. The high priest's servant comes to arrest him and Peter takes out his sword and cuts the guy's ear off. Because, you know, he's bringing the kingdom of God and all of its power, right? So he thought. All of that macho stuff didn't last very long, right? Because that same night, what was it? It was deny, deny, deny. I was never with him. I didn't even know him. Who are you talking about? But now, what's gotten into Peter? He's a different man. And he isn't just preaching publicly. Uh, Pentecost has also given him the power to persevere. And with him, the whole community has that power as well. His sermons have cut people to the heart, and that's made people uncomfortable, right? His exaltation of Jesus as king of kings has really upset a lot of the wannabe kings of the religious establishment. And so chapter 4, verse 1, they arrest Peter and John and they throw them in jail. He gets to speak during his trial the next day and he gives witness to Jesus. They warn him, verse 18, don't speak in this name anymore. Peter says, I'm sorry, but I can't obey that order. And because of his boldness, two things happened. People joined him in being bold And those same people also joined him, chapter 5, verse 41, in suffering disgrace for Jesus' sake. In the face of people's need, they persevered in preaching grace and truth. In the face of people's threats, they have the Pentecostal power to persevere. They left their trial, quote, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace. For Jesus' name. And so they never stopped proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They have the power to persevere. So Pentecost power is the power that pushes people to go public. It is the power to proclaim. It's the power to persevere. And then the last thing to say about Pentecost power is that it is the power to procreate. To procreate. Over and over in the book of Acts, Luke gives us these little progress reports, right? He'll report some drama, some trouble in the life of the early church. But then over and over, right after some dramatic episode, you know what he'll say? He'll say something like, and the word of God grew, right? In other words, you can't stop this thing. Peter preaches and then... Chapter 2, verse 41, 3,000 were added to their number. The disciples took their fellowship public. And chapter 2, verse 47, many people were added 
Peter and John are jailed, but chapter 4, verse 4, many people nevertheless believed, and the church grew. All kinds of weird stuff happens in Acts chapter 5. But nevertheless, verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So as soon as the church comes out of quarantine and the spirit infects the church, every event now seems to become, for Luke, a super spreader event, doesn't it? I don't know if that metaphor is good or bad, but there it is. I come from America, as, as you know, and in America, you can grow churches, and you can grow them really big, right? You heard about this? Um, you can do it by having slick programs, by having great tech. You can do it by having a much more handsome preacher than you guys are stuck with. You get the elements together. <laughs> you, if you build it, they will come is kind of the story, the American dream of the American church in some ways. You can get a big church, as one Korean pastor who visited America noticed, you can get a big church without any help from the Holy Spirit. But that's not, of course, procreation, right? It's emotional and spiritual manipulation. It's an appeal to people's consumer instincts. And so people move from church to church But the church is competing. It's not procreating. Because procreative power comes just from one source, right? From God. So if if we are in the business together of providing religious goods and services, then we better get our act together, and we better do it better and slicker than other churches, or else pretty soon we'll be out of business. But if we are a church that is birthed by the resurrection of Jesus and fueled with Pentecostal power, then, friends, procreation will be a natural part of the life of our fellowship. The sheer power of the resurrection of Jesus and the force of his enthronement at God's right hand, the majesty of his grace poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit beginning at Pentecost, this is the stuff that has made us part of the new birth. And it's that same stuff the grace of God in Christ that makes it impossible for us as the church not, not to procreate. My old pastor said, every church is a hospital and every real church has its maternity wing. And usually that maternity wing is busy with new life. When we moved from act one to act two, in the missional life of the church. The uncertainty that we saw in Act 1 doesn't just disappear. But what does disappear is our inaction, our hiding. It was impossible for the disciples after Pentecost not to go public, not to proclaim, persevere, and procreate. Don't speak in that name. We must Don't move out into the community, impossible. Don't mess with the status quo. I'm sorry, but history itself has been invaded and reached its climax. Nothing is ever going to be the same. 
And so once Jesus and all that he has done for us has, has captured our hearts, once Jesus and his majesty has captured our imaginations, and once Jesus and all of his sovereign grace has grabbed a hold of our wills, then we can't not move out. And going back to the beginning now, you know what will happen as we do? Well, friends, the reality of Jesus' presence, which is closer to us than we are to ourselves, full of grace and truth, this presence of Jesus will become more and more tangible to our hearts and our souls and our spirits. His grace will become more tender to us as we move out. His truth will become sweeter to us as we move out. His name will become more like honey on our lips and his spirit like water to our souls as we move out in response to his powerful presence. We'll be dependent on him for everything and his nearness will become more tangible as we depend on him. Friends, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? But here's the thing that's also true. Though Jesus be the same yesterday and today and forever, yours and my and our experience of him becomes more beautiful, more believable as we, with the power of Pentecost, go public, as we proclaim, as we persevere in that proclamation, and as, by God's grace, we procreate. That's my hope and dream for us as a congregation, as a proclamation people. That we would experience the nearness of Jesus because we are on the way alongside of Jesus, moving out that the word of God might grow, not just among us, but among our community. Heavenly Father, those are our hopes and our desires. We're thankful for the way that the early church experienced it, and we are jealous of them. We want to experience the same thing for ourselves. We don't ask for anything fancy, not even for prophecy or miracles or any of the signs and wonders that you poured out in those days, but we ask and we desire, above all things, your presence in power and your grace in all of its sweetness to come nearer to us as we draw near to you and as we go with you out into the world with your good news. We ask it together in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.